I think people are enthusiastic about the future based on these past events going probably in, in some cases better than people expected. Hey, listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your support helps us reach more listeners and bring you more exciting content in the future. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect with Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Associate with Avon Ventures. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and is only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. Let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey, guys. Hey. Parth, welcome back. <laughs> it's, it's good to be back. It's good to be back joining the crew. It's been a long while, and we, we have this running joke where I keep telling people that you're coming back next week, <laughs> and you're not. You, in fact, were not coming back next week, so I'm glad that the last week I was finally correct that you're back <laughs> this week. I don't know. I feel, like I, I feel like a new person, a new man after this break. It's just uh, I love taking longer breaks, so it's good to be back. So you must have tried new things while you were gone. You know, we've been anxiously awaiting. I'm just curious. I, I you send us a picture of yourself on horseback. Uh, we're in the mountainous regions of Eastern Europe. That's right. I, I did some horseback riding uh, for two days straight, trotting through the plains of Georgia in Eastern Europe. I crossed two rivers on a horse. And then there's also something just about the architecture of Eastern Europe. Like it almost looks like a Call of Duty map to me <laughs> for some reason. So... But um, I also drove a race car on a Formula One track, so I had a lot of fun. I, I I did not touch crypto at all. So if I if I if I seem a bit rusty, I feel like you'll just have to carry me along, and I I promise I'll be I'll be stronger next year. <laughs> you'll you'll have to tell us: is it easier to ride a horse across a river or bridge from one chain to another? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good one. <laughs> At least, at least with a horse, you know that you're, you're, you're going to make it afar. Like you'll actually make it to the other point with bridges. You don't. So, <laughs> but, but wait, I think you, you, you did touch crypto once you were telling us on, on your vacation, right? Maybe that, you know, we've, we've missed the, uh, this week I tried or last week I tried. So, you know, why don't you <laughs> tell us about your crypto experience while you're traveling? <laughs> so, so in Tbilisi, Georgia, there was a crypto bar where you could pay for shots in, uh, in crypto. And so I, I decided to make a vlog out of it. And I, I said, Hey, I'm going to pay in USDC. Uh, but apparently they only accept tether. And so that kind of threw me off. And I, I decided to just pay by cash because I, I didn't pay have cash. Tether. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's always crazy when that happens. There's a, I went once went into like a, ba like a coffee shop bagel store and they're like, oh, I saw they, that they accepted Bitcoin as payment and it really threw me off. Right. <laughs> like it, it, considering we do this for a living, I'm like, Oh, I, I think I could do that. Make I can that actually happen. use yeah. this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I, if I told you this, but years ago when I first joined blockchain in gear, probably about five, six years ago, I brought my kids to an indoor rock climbing wall. And they said you could pay in Bitcoin. So I was like, all right, I'm, I'm going to use it. I was in my earlier days of really, before I realized I should hodl. 
and they just couldn't figure it out. So it's funny, they advertised, but the mechanics weren't quite there. I think it's a lot easier now than it was then, for sure. Yeah. No, yeah. Th this place was pretty legit. Like, it just, the name of this place was Crypto Bar. So you could see how a lot of like minded people were in the bar. Should it have been called Tether Bar then, if it's not all? <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Um, so this is the last episode of the year. We've made it. It's been it's been quite the year. I, I don't know about you guys. Well, Parth, maybe not for you since you just came back from a nice long vacation, but I feel a little exhausted. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm looking forward to the next few weeks of uh, relaxation before we uh, before we kick 2024 off. But since it's the last episode of the year, I figured it would be a good opportunity for us to maybe just take a step back and and think and talk about what our highs and lows were from the year. And there were plenty of highs, plenty of lows this year. Um, I don't think this is going to be an exhaustive conversation by any stretch, but yeah. So, I mean, I'm happy to get us kicked off. I know we've, we've spent some time thinking about this um, and we could just have a conversation on it. So I guess my biggest low from the year was really around kind of the collapse of SVB, the regional banking crisis. And then, you know, of course the issues with Silvergate um, and Signature and kind of the impact, you know, on, on, of course, on the market in general, but particularly on crypto, right? Like this has been a very hot button issue for the ecosystem because banking and, you know, access to the banking system is, is critical to running your business, right? And so, you know, we, we saw the industry face this kind of existential threat when these collapses happened or closure collapses and closures happened. Right. Um, and I think since then, I would argue that, you know, you've seen less activity in this space because again, this, this kind of foundational capability of being able to integrate with, you know, global payment systems and interact with fiat markets, right. Is, you know, a significant impact to these businesses, right? And so, I'm curious to get your your guys' thoughts on this. But what, what we what we talked about doing this episode, that's what immediately jumped out to me as as probably one of the biggest lows of the year in general across the industry. Right, I, I had the same low because I feel like the biggest low and uh, the biggest breach of confidence for me was the USDC DPEG in March because of the banking crisis. Uh, when you think about it, USDC was considered the safest peg in crypto. In fact, I, I feel like USDC was DeFi's Captain America, right? Just doing all the right things, being transparent with audits, using US banks, expanding to dozens of blockchains. But when you had the banking crisis, uh, they were also nice enough or transparent enough to confirm on Twitter that they had 3.3 billion US dollars tied up in Silicon Valley Bank, which was at the time uh, a third of Circle's cash reserves. And, and that is when USDC immediately lost its peg. And so USDC mm -hmm. redemptions were stopped. And, and just, I'm, I'm just getting that jittery feeling just thinking about that day. Cause I know when USDC became 82 cents, that's when a lot of people like really just lost confidence. Coinbase stopped, decided to pause USDC conversions. And that's when I, I felt how fragile all of this is. Right. When your stable coin is trading for 82 cents, you know, it's a crappy situation. So it just got, it got me back to like Luna Terra memories. I don't know how did, you did felt it about it. Did it get that low? Yeah. It was, it was 82 cents. For I, I didn't realize. I thought it was 12. I thought it was 88. But regardless, I think what you're calling out is you, there is a system in the, in the traditional banking world where not every dollar of deposits is insured. And then we saw in the, in the wake of that, that the FDIC did come in and, and make everyone whole. So that's when we saw that quick rebound, but it does highlight uh, the importance of understanding how banking works and thinking about 
how the rules are applied. In this case, the regulator stepped in and, and made people whole at SVB, but it's not always the case. Yeah. And that had just like, that was in March of this year. And in November of 2022 was FTX. So we were kind of just coming out of like really painful centralized exchanges and centralized lending platforms across 2022 having failures and that impacting crypto, even though like the networks themselves, like we talked about it a million times, like the networks themselves kind of just kept doing what they were doing and they don't know that there's a centralized exchange or an individual person that's self-custodying assets, whatever. And then in March, we kind of got hit with just a completely different issue that was like within the traditional banking system, but SVB, and then it also, you know, sprung out and and hit Silvergate and Signature. And so these banks that operated like the Sen and Signet networks also created just like distortions in the crypto market where we had just kind of were putting FTX in the rearview mirror. And then we had banking issues, like I think Parth, you said a few minutes ago, like getting access to the banking system has always been a struggle for crypto companies over the past decade. And then all of a sudden, these, you know, these companies that a lot of the industry was reliant on were going out of business. It was definitely one of the lower points of the year. I'm glad you brought up the Silvergate Exchange Network and and Signatures Network. When when we think about what value those entities brought was large institutions could transact fiat versus crypto off banking hours because of, or if both parties of transaction were, were members of those networks. So basically internal bank transfers, debits and credits that were used to offset on-chain transactions. And that was a, a, a big part of, of what kept, I would say a big part of what kept the off hours trading amongst those entities active. Especially more for stable coin issuers, right? Because they need that 24-7, 365 redemption and minting. And and so when you think about outside the U.S. in terms of stablecoin uses, you have countries like Argentina, Venezuela, Turkey that used USDC for for services, right? And once this Silicon Valley Bank uh, crisis happened, that confidence was lost, and it's kind of hard to win that back. And on the contrary, you had Tether, which is generally taken to be more opaque, <laughs> which kind of absorbed all of those outflows and and then it grew to bigger heights. Like as of now, the market cap of USDT is 91 billion and Circle of USDC is close to 24 billion. And the sad part is that Circle did not know that this banking crisis is gonna happen, right? Like they just, they did all the right things, but they still kind of got the thin end to the situation. Well, Parth, even though there was some disruption there, I think one of the other things to highlight around stablecoins Stablecoin supply has been down throughout the year, although it's it's rebounded a bit as of late. The velocity of stablecoin volume has peaked. And you know, we're, we did an episode not that long ago with Nick Carter from Castle Island, and we talked about the fact that velocity was actually equivalent to some of the largest global payment providers. So it just shows that uh, although the, the notional amount outstanding, the nominal value traded or transacted is is quite significant. So, yeah, I think these are all great points. And I guess what I'm thinking, you know, right now is, is how, how does the industry move forward from this point? Right. Like, I think, you know, we've, we've continued, like I said, this was, this happened in, you know, March, right? March. Mm -hmm. Yeah. March March 9th. Um, March 9th. Yeah. And, and, you know, 
there was a lot of panic and it seems to have quieted down, right? But I do think that there are much longer term implications here, um, you know, for the companies that are building in the space. Um, and I think like this, this is probably one of the biggest open questions as we had, as we head into the new year, right? I think this is going to continue to become, um, this is going to continue to be an issue. Um, and, and, and honestly, for the companies that do have banking relationships, it's a competitive advantage, right? Um, because they're just, you know, able to conduct their businesses in, in different ways than companies that don't. Um, and so it'll be really interesting to see how this unfolds. Let's change gears a little bit. Jason, you want to talk about your high from the year? Cause I think that'll kind of, that's, that's, you know, more protocol related and it will maybe set us on a, a more crypto, <laughs> crypto centric, uh, strings of highs, highs and lows. <laughs> yeah. So it was fun to look back. So I, I decided to, to focus on the Chappella upgrade for Ethereum. So, uh, we had the Shanghai and Capella upgrades happening at the same time. And basically what this allowed, uh, in layman's terms was for the unlocking of Ethereum that was staked to validators. And, you know, we're looking and seeing, okay, shift to proof of stake from proof of work has led to, at times, an increase in supply, but mo- majority of the time, it seems it's been a decrease in supply. And according to some of the on-chain metrics, it's been uh, something to the tune of, uh, I think, ultrasound money is saying that since we shifted, uh, it's been about 19,000, roughly 19,000 less Ethereum in terms of supply change. But when you think about what Chappella did in allowing for the withdrawal from validators, a lot of people speculated that we might see a massive shift from staked ETH to unstaked ETH as liquidity came into the market. But a quick glance at the year-to-date volume growth of validators shows the beginning of the year, there were just over uh, 490,000 Ethereum validators. And we're ending the year at almost 890,000 or a little more than 890,000 validators. So although there was some initial reduction in Ethereum staked, uh, we know that, for example, in the case of Kraken, they were, they were forced to destake based on some SEC guidelines that they had received. But generally speaking, we've seen more Ethereum get staked than withdrawn over the course of the year to the point where the number of validators is up about 400,000. I have a talking point, which is kind of somewhat related. It's not a high or a low, but it's related to ETH getting staked. So one of the significant changes in 2023 was in DeFi lending protocols. The shift was that ETH has always been the primary source of collateral. But in 2023, it was taken over by liquid staking protocols like Lido Steeth. So Lido Steeth now accounts for around 60% of collateral in DeFi lending protocols, which kind of explains the rise of, of ETH staking in Lido. So, so think about it this way. We talk about stable coins so much. The market cap of Lido is as of now 20 billion, which is pretty close to USDC's market cap of 24 billion. That's pretty fascinating, right? Because, all right, someone has Ethereum, they decide to stake it. If they're not running their own validator, they can turn to one of these providers like Lido they can essentially delegate their Ethereum to be staked. In exchange, they get a receipt token, the staked ETH token, and they turn around and they have utility of that. So they maintain the liquidity aspect while also getting the income opportunity from the staked ETH, which is really interesting because in in some ways, it it just shows the virtuous cycle. And I I use that term virtuous cycle loosely. Uh, You're really just talking about the leverage that you can create within the system if you choose to. What's interesting about this to me is that, you know, there was really a lot of speculation 
going into Chappella around what the market implications would be once all of once these kind of validators had the ability to unstake, right? And we didn't really see, you know, we we saw a tremendous amount of demand, um, you know, for staked ETH, but you know, and of course we saw some redemptions, you know, following, you know, that unlock happening, but we didn't really see the mass exodus that some people thought we would, right? And now, when you think from a market perspective, it's, it's largely normalized, right? There isn't much of a queue to stake anymore, um, and there isn't much of a queue to unstake, right? So as far as you know protocol or system operations go, um, you know, it all looks, you know, fairly stable. And I think, again, this will be interesting because we haven't really seen any, you know, type of macro stress event where you would see um, a large number of, you know, individuals looking to exit validators. Um, and so that could potentially be something in the future that is a watch area, you know, as we move forward. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought up the validator queue. So I, I Googled it on uh, validatorqueue.com. Back in June, we had a validator entry queue that included more than 95,000 validators. So you were talking 45 plus days of waiting to get your validator funded and actively participating in securing the Ethereum network. That's now down to zero days. And then from the exit withdrawal uh, or validator queue, there's a small blip back in June, but it's been pretty flat since then. A little bit of a spike earlier this month uh, up to, I think it was like, Less than you know, less than ten, so it just shows you that there's a very active market here. And let's not forget why you actually stake and why validators exist. It's in order to append transactions to the ledger and provide security. So this is a just a compensation that people are getting in terms of the staking rewards, but ultimately it's becoming a more hardened network because there are more validators that are securing the network. Yeah, it's impressive the level of stability you've gotten out of Ethereum as a network, considering that's three years in a row, according to my tally anyways, of like major protocol changes. You had EIP 1559 in August of 21. You had the merge in September 22. And then you kind of had the completion of the merge effectively with Chappella in April of 23. And now we're looking ahead to EIP 4844. I don't know what the latest on the timeline there is, but probably what Q1 of next year, something like that, realistically, maybe Q2. But it's impressive that like, in spite of all of that, all of these changing variables that like, you end up with like this, you know, net deflationary aspect of the network that is like, it does actually seem pretty sustainable. And you have so many different variables that are like moving around that like, it's like, oh, pretty cool. And what I think is really important, to, and those are great points, not to necessarily foreshadow things to come, but just to acknowledge that there's a lot of speculation about tokenization and real world assets growing in terms of their distribution on chain. And when you can experience that type of stability through these major events, I think personally that it will lead to more confidence in that being a, a foundation upon which people can build. But again, there are other EVM chains out there. There are layer twos. We still have to address network congestion and transaction fees, but Generally speaking, I think people are enthusiastic about the future based on these past events going probably in, in some cases better than people expected. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably share one of my highs, which is kind of related to to just different blockchains. So when you think about 2021 and 2022, that was kind of the year of all the L1s, right? So your Solanas, your Avalanche, your Near Cosmos. But by the beginning of 2023 or close to Feb 2023, 
people realized that there wasn't really any demand for block space or for these Altel ones. And so you had layer twos like Optimism and Arbitrum just dominate the news, right? But then there was this one blockchain which had a big catastrophe, right? So one billion of their tokens were held by a guilty company called Alameda. And this could have been the final nail in the coffin for this blockchain. But in spite of that, Solana survived. And so Solana has been kind of the uh, the, the surprise or the high for me this year with its community of builders still building infrastructure and applications on this blockchain. So I think it's it's kind of refreshing to see GitHub commits on Solana, people still hacking on Solana, whether it's payment applications, games, liquid staking protocols. And so, so far, Solana for me has been kind of like the cockroach of the nuclear explosion, like it still survived. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and nice analogy. I, I do, I do want to share an anecdote though. So, so I was at this gym in New Delhi, uh, in India, and I saw this guy on a treadmill uh, who was wearing a Solana Hacker House sweatshirt. And so, so I walked up to him and I said, Hey, we, so we got talking and I asked him, Hey, what other blockchains have you hacked on before or have you built on before? And so he said he started with Solana. Solana is the only chain that he has made a transaction on. Now, normally when you think about an alt L1, you think about developers who started with Ethereum and then for some reason they gravitate towards a Solana or a Nier or something else. But now you have this new crop of people who started building on Solana. And the same happened in 2018 when you had this community of people building on Ethereum who had not touched Bitcoin before, right? So, so I've, I've kind of uh, spoken about this before, but Solana is kind of this, your community really grows if you are bound by trauma. And that's kind of been the story of Solana. Hmm. That's a really interesting observation, Parth. I think it's been... So, so I think we could also probably dovetail that into something else that we wanted to talk about, which was, you know, interoperability, right? I think that has also, you know, been one of the highs of the year and that we've seen a lot of, you know, a lot of meaningful development work being done on, you know, rollups as a service, you know, really enabling people to kind of go base their projects off, you know, the, the, fundamentals of the base chain with, and not having to worry about spinning up their blockchains and that from my perspective has been a really positive you know from an innovation standpoint yeah i mean to to ryan's point like building a new chain is really hard because you have to think about consensus think about tokenomics you have to beg people to run nodes but uh 2023 was important because you had these entire ecosystems or services where you could use something like an op stack which abstracts away all of that complexities from you so when you have strong roll up as a service options, instead of launching a new chain, you just focus on the application or whatever you are building. It's, it's kind of like how in the 1980s, like you were, there were multiple computer networks, right? So you had multiple internets, but then in the 1980s after TCP IP, you had a standard. And so you had those internets talking to each other, becoming like one big internet. I, I don't know if it's a, if it's a right analogy, but now, when you have OP stack and Arbitrum Orbit, you are allowing these layer twos to be compatible with each other innately, right? Without the need for those like horrible bridges, which often get hacked. So uh, Base, Gitcoin, Zora, these are some of the prominent ecosystems that are using uh, OP stack. Binance, WorldCoin, yeah. they're also using it. Yeah, I think that maybe ties into my low of this year. 
uh, which is, I think what you're talking about is like setting the foundation um, and of like building blocks of like uh, consensus mechanisms for these networks and allowing things to be interoperable. That's all really important. But at the end of the day, like if we don't have applications or use cases, and this is my my kind of like low of the year, which maybe is like uh, a little bit foreshadowing of like something I'm hopeful of in the next year or so, is the fact that like we really didn't have any like killer use cases that I could look to like everyone I know in my family or, or my friends that don't pay attention to crypto that they're interacting with or using. And like, none of that has really come to fruition in my view. It's still really like crypto is still really siloed um, in terms of a, like the use cases that like we could say exist are like, okay, a few of these tokens maybe serve as like these alternative store value assets like Bitcoin. And, and you could argue maybe Ethereum. Okay. Stable coins have grown on these smart contract platforms that enable like foreign remittance or people to get access, you know, to, to stable us dollar value, um, and transact. But like outside of those use cases, it's just like, it seems like there's just been a lot of speculation and then building like the base layer or platform to build applications on top of. And so what I'm sort of disappointed in this year is that there wasn't like a, an awesome non-financial use case that I saw uh, be created at like at scale. Um, but at the same time, that leaves me sort of hopeful that maybe in the next year or so, we will have something like that. Yeah, we didn't have a chat GPT moment, which AI did for crypto, <laughs> right? Like that's exactly what yep. you need. You need something which is which democratizes crypto. Exactly. I mean, in all fairness, aren't we like in a, in a completely different position in terms of like adoption and, and tech, you know, technology maturity? Like we've been talking about AI arguably a, a little bit longer than we've been talking about crypto and digital assets, right? So I, I think if you, if you kind of use that scale, we're probably what five years away from, you know, something incredibly disruptive. <laughs> yeah. And maybe it's just like lack of patience and failing to yeah. see the, whatever the forest through the trees, uh, whatever the saying is, but yeah, but, I would just, I, I would like to be able to have a better answer to the question of like, okay, what can I use it for other than like in large part, a lot of the space is still just like based on speculation. And I'd like to have tangible use cases to be able to show people um, <laughs> that operate at scale rather than just, you know, proof of concepts and small silos. Well, I, I sort of jump in there for a minute because the AI thing made me really think about like what AI has a lot of headlines, Ryan, to your point, it's been around longer. People have worked on it. Uh, it's more tangible because the user experience can be quite simple. Um, we still have some user experience opportunities, quite frankly, a lot of user experience opportunities in the digital asset and blockchain space. But I'll sort of use that as a, a, an angle to so, sort of pivot. When you look at AI right now, there's some questions about how do you govern it? How do you manage it? There's a lot of focus now happening in uh regulatory and, and more, not even regulatory, but more legislative circles. And this sort of brings me to one of my cautiously optimistic, somewhat frustrated lows. Uh, and that that's really around the clarity around how legislative and regulatory rules are evolving for digital assets, more particularly in the Western countries. I think we see a lot of progress in the East. Uh, I see tremendous clarity, lots of work in Singapore. I mean, we We've been talking about their real world asset tokenization and use of stable coins for payments. You know, their monetary authority of Singapore actually working constructively to, to help grow the market and attract talent and capital there. 
We see Mika in the EU, uh, where people are getting more clarity around how things will grow. Even uh, the UK, the FCA sandbox. Um, you know, I, I did see an article earlier today about a, a new pack being created to help influence and inform and educate prospective legislators. But we see a lot happening in the U.S. Congress, and there's been a lot of discussion. Um, you know, there's some frustration still with whether or not uh, existing regulations can appropriately address the evolving crypto asset space. But I, I'm optimistic that there'll be continued discussion. I just hope that with all the focus on AI, that we don't lose some of the momentum on the education and, and getting clarity. Because, you know, we hear some, I'll say some people with their slogans that uh, there's nothing good coming from crypto. I hear some of the same things talking about AI. And I think to myself, my, my goodness, can we actually look at a balanced approach and can we actually look at the positive implications for inclusion? And honestly, you know, I think Nick Hart said it really well. When you think about stable coins, the US dollar being global reserve currency can be further enhanced possibly by using uh, stable coins. Otherwise, you might see dollar representation of things of tokenized treasuries, which we're seeing in some cases where they're able to have a dollar value and generate income. But here we would consider that a security and not necessarily something that people could hold and not treat it as if it were regulated as a security. With other cases, it's just an asset. But I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm also frustrated. I'd like to see more pace in our own government and our own regulatory environment, just so that we can continue to to drive with clarity. So tremendous opportunity. Yeah. No, Jason, it's a great point because it definitely it was probably the most or one of the most persistent themes throughout the year, right? And of course, we have a number of you know, you know, crypto-related investment products that we've we've heard a lot about recently, right? Um, kind of sitting in queue for approval. So again, I think you know, 2024 will be a fairly formative year on that front, as well as you know, some of these kind of pending lawsuits that have you know maybe indirect implications for certain parts of the ecosystem, certain assets in terms of how they're viewed from a regulatory perspective. I would expect that we'll start to see some movement in those cases and potentially get some answers there. So. That'll be really interesting to watch as well. And that that's a big reason why I say I'm cautiously optimistic. It's just pace. It's it's the the frustration was with the pace, not with the potential outcomes. Yeah. So so let's let's close out, you know, on on maybe, you know, a high or again, I think we should probably be cautiously optimistic with these two. So Jack, yours and, and mine, they were they were fairly fairly closely related. So mine was really around FTX. And I think if you kind of take a step back and you think about FTX over the course of 2023, you know, they declared bankruptcy in November 2022. So we started this year basically in turmoil, right? Um, there, was, there was not a lot of clarity, not a lot of answers in terms of, you know, what had happened, you know, where, where the assets were, what those assets were valued at, you know, what the loss to users was going to be. And over the course of the year, you know, the, the, you know, the estate has done a pretty good job surveying, you know, what had, you know, again, what happened, you know, what assets they still held and really consolidating that, you know, to attempt to make the debtors of FTX whole whole customers whole um, and I think even as, as recently as today and yesterday you know they, they've uh, filed amendments um, to their bankruptcy plan basically saying that I, I believe that they're going to pay users back based on the valuation of their assets at the time of, of you know them filing bankruptcy uh, in 2022 so from a investor standpoint 
or customer standpoint, not great given that you will, they'll be forfeiting, you know, all of the, um, the upside that we've seen over the last year. But I think, you know, again, we, we have clarity as to what exactly the state of the state is with FTX following their bankruptcy. In parallel, you had Sam's case going on. He's obviously been found guilty on a number of charges related to fraud and, um, you know, other, other, you know, federal crimes. Um, you know, he's yet to be sentenced in the coming year. But again, these are things that help bring closure to what is arguably one of the most seismic events in the space ever. Right. And so, Jack, I, yours, you want to speak a little bit to Binance? Cause I think, you know, yeah, they're obviously related to some degree here. And, and with FTX, it does feel like to some degree, it's like closing a, a chapter of like crypto's history, which I think given the last, you know, two years and, and some of the backlash that's happened as a result of it is, you know, kind of nice to, to move on to a, a clean slate potentially next year. Um, but with, with Binance, for me, that's one of the highlights is, is more recently is this settlement, uh, between, uh, Binance and, and U.S. regulators, I view as, a major positive, assuming we have all regulators have all the facts and, you know, everything that that's here is true in that it appears that Binance has reached a settlement with the U.S. government and that they're going to be overseen uh, to you know some certain degree uh, for the next few years. And that this went off without a hitch, it appeared. And like markets held pretty strong and, and stable crypto markets. And like, I always viewed that as one of the biggest risks was after FTX, it kind of felt like there were risks that Binance could have some somewhat of a similar situation. And due to the concentration of Binance, you know, share of, of spot market volume and derivatives volume, you know, more than 50%, I believe on, on both fronts still, um, that was always sort of an existential risk that you were hold you know crossing your fingers hoping that we didn't have a rerun of what had happened in 2022 and at least thus far it seems like we haven't and we may not in in the future and i think that that's that was one of the biggest risks and maybe it potentially doesn't exist or it's reduced uh moving forward which i think is good heading into next year that's that's going to be the most anticlimactic high right the the <laughs> high is that finance didn't blow up <laughs> Well, I, I think that, yeah, I, I just, I think it was a big risk and I, it seems at the moment anyways, that a lot of that risk never materialized or never existed in the first place. Maybe we'll see that. Yeah. yeah. That that's hopefully it stays as a high and doesn't become a low in 2024 or 25. Yeah. I mean, I would just like to have crypto win or lose on its own merits and not on yeah. the basis of centralized actors you know, that are putting their own yeah. interests ahead of these networks themselves. Like, let's actually see if there's real use cases here. If there aren't, then okay. Like a lot of the space is going to be worthless. If there are, then like, let it do its thing and, and flourish. Either way, I'd like all this noise to go away. And this is maybe evidence that, you know, some of that is, is happening and we can just put crypto sort of on the big stage and see whether or not it actually can do some interesting things for the world. Well, it's a, a lot of the largest crises that we've ever faced as an industry are man-made, not technology driven. Yeah, right? Exactly. Um, like, sure, there's, you know, some hack, you know, there's hacks, but usually human error, right? In terms of how systems are designed, you know, the, the protocols generally are pretty, and the technology is pretty reliable, right? It's how it's being implemented um, that is is sometimes creating some of these issues. And you can say that's the same, that's the same across any industry, right? It just so happens that this industry gets um, outsized attention at times. Right. I have, I have another low, which I just thought of 
Uh, and so maybe that can be my last low. But okay. I, I wish I saw more stablecoin issuers in 2023. So it's again, it's kind of anticlimactic. But stablecoin, like when you think about stablecoin issuers, they're super powerful. Like even, even Vitalik said that Tether and USDC will be significant deciders in any sort of future contentious hard forks. And together they're close to 150 to $200 billion in market cap. And so if there is any sort of contentious hard fork, when you talk about Ethereum upgrades, they're the ones who sort of decide, hey, you know what? I like this version of the blockchain more. And so they, they kind of choose the winner. And uh, I wish there were just more transparent fiat-backed stablecoin alternatives. Right now, we just have Tether and uh, and Circle. Yeah, that'll be, again, that's another really interesting area to watch, right? Because I think there's, you know, obviously the regulatory aspect of that as well, right? And, you know, it's continued to boggle my mind how, you know, Tether's been able to to maintain so much market share. So I do think that as we think about areas that are, you know, ripe for change and maybe a little bit of disruption, I, I think that's one area that will be, you know, could potentially be where we see more entrants coming in moving forward. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of companies that are getting funding and the, the whole yield bearing stable. There's definitely a question of whether or not, you know, U.S., citizens can access those types of products, but even like offshore, um, a lot of those things are starting to be incubated. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out into the yeah. next year if we see an offshoot of various yield bearing alternatives given where you know, rates are currently as well. Definitely. All right, guys, I think we can leave it there. Um, you know, I just want to thank you all for a really awesome year. Lots of great discussions, um, you know, lots of noise at times. And I think, you know, overall, we've done a really good job kind of parsing through that um, and just, you know, bringing some sanity to the madness at times. So thank you for for contributing here. Um, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure. And for for everyone listening, um, you know, thank you for for continuing to tune in here. We wish you, you know, a happy and healthy holiday season um, and a happy new year. And we'll see you at the top of 2024. Thanks. See ya. Crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time and is for investors with a high risk tolerance. Crypto may also be more susceptible to market manipulation than securities not insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or the Security Protection Corporation. Investors in crypto do not benefit from the same regulatory protections applicable to registered securities. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and are not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution would or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about 
and observe such restrictions. Third-party trading herein are the property of their respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. One zero four zero one five six.